The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. Was J.R.R. Tolkien a misogynist? And I know. I know what you're thinking. Oh my goodness, who would even ask a question like that? Aren't we allowed to have any nice things? And believe me, I'm not asking this question out of a perverse desire to ruin your appreciation of the last century's finest work of literature, bar none. Uh, this assumption just cropped up in a YouTube video I watched recently, and I just couldn't—I just couldn't help myself. Uh, I'm a Tolkien lover, a fantasy author, and a history scholar, and so I've got to explain to everyone just what you all get wrong about Tolkien's female characters, especially everyone's favourite shield maiden, Eowyn of Rohan. So, if you think you know Eowyn of Rohan, think again. You best put seatbelts on your ears, listeners. Because I'm going to take them for the ride of their lives. I'm Susanna Rountree, and I'd like to welcome you to a specially, specially festive and monstrously nerdy episode of the Monstrous Regiment podcast. So, in a three-part video essay on Peter Jackson's rather dreadful The Hobbit films, uh, a prominent YouTuber, Lindsay Ellis, took several minutes to discuss the character of Tauriel, the extra-canonical female character which Jackson and co. added to the films. Uh, she makes an excellent argument um, that the addition of this character to the Hobbit films is just an example of cynical tokenism just intended to sell movie tickets to female audiences, not actually intended to provide an interesting or an important female character who would have an Im a meaningful impact on the plot. Nor, she goes on, and this is going to be a pretty lengthy quote, nor does it fix the underlying issue of the way that Tolkien wrote women, or in the case of Hobbit, didn't. Fantasy in general has a women problem because history is patriarchal, and since most fantasy is based on history, authors want to write patriarchal societies, but they don't really want to think or go into how or why these structures came to exist. On the one hand, you have something like Skyrim, which is about as egalitarian as a fantasy world is going to get, and then you have works like A Song of Ice and Fire, where the patriarchal aspects of the society are both acknowledged and integrated into the narrative consciously, and then, of course, the benign sexism of Tolkien, where women are fair maidens, sometimes powerful maidens, like in the case of Galadriel, but we don't really get to see it because you know she's got to restrain that. Eowyn gets her moment of awesome, but when Faramir reads her a poem, she decides she's done with being a shield maiden and becomes a good waifu. But more common in recent fantasy, at least fantasy written by men, is the version where there's an implied patriarchal structure given the utter death of women in positions of power, but no one really talks about it. And that angle, the one where there's like a token strong lady, that's kind of how I feel they went with Tariel's inclusion in these movies. And it's not just that she's there, it's that she feels so out of place. No one in universe points it out, because Tolkien didn't really care. But women have pretty strict gender roles in Middle-earth. Women don't do battle, that's why Eowyn stepping out of her lane was worth remarking upon. Eowyn disguised herself as a man because she had to, because women don't do battle in Tolkien's universe. 
and Lindsay Ellis quote. And I can't tell you how strongly I disagree with most of what was said in that quote. Uh, the big misconception that I've come across over years of being either active within Tolkien fandom or just quiet on the sidelines is this assumption that Eowyn of Rohan had to defy a patriarchal power structure in order to ride to war. So today I'd love to tackle this misconception, or series of misconceptions, in order to explain just why it is that we get Eowyn completely wrong if we assume that her society, or the man who created both of them, were sexist. So I'm going to give you seven misconceptions that you might have about Eowyn, which I think explain what's really going on with her. So misconception number one is women didn't fight in historical cultures because those cultures were patriarchal. So, okay, first of all, I don't want to deny that history has traditionally seen a fair bit of patriarchalism to varying degrees throughout. Uh, in some cases, the patriarchalism was a lot worse than you might expect, like in Renaissance Venice, where at one point up to 80% of the daughters of the aristocracy were forcibly imprisoned in convents for their whole lives for little reason apart from family prestige. In other cases, it was a lot better than you think. Uh, this seems to have been particularly true in the early to high Middle Ages. I am writing a historical fantasy series set during the Crusades, and in my research I've come across more strong, influential women than you could shake a stick at. Uh, feudal societies were societies of endless petty warfare, uh, and that meant that in particularly unstable locations, women could and did outlive multiple husbands, I'm talking two, three, even four husbands, and they acted as queens and countesses. They brought some much-needed stability and continuity to these societies, and they even participated in warfare. Noble women often directed siege warfare while their men were away. For example, in 1178, when Saladin attacked the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the Hospitaller Knight, Raymond, recorded that Jerusalem was emptied of men. He says, We put the defence of the Tower of David and the whole city in the hands of our women. This was not an isolated circumstance. Uh, one medieval author, the 15th century Frenchwoman Christine de Pizan, insisted that women should learn about siege warfare. It is also fitting for her to have a spirit of a man, she says. This means that she ought not to be educated entirely indoors, nor in only the great feminine virtues. Her men should be able to rely on her for all kinds of protection in the absence of their lord, in a situation where anyone would offer to do them any harm. She ought to know how to use weapons and be familiar with everything that pertains to them, so that she may be ready to command her men if the need arises. She should know how to launch an attack or defend against one if the situation calls for it. She should take care that her fortresses are well garrisoned. Now, Christine de Pizan spent a lot of time arguing against the way that women in her society were viewed, which means that we can't necessarily take her as representative of her culture. However, many medieval women, when it did come down to it, on a practical level, they must have had some military training and even experience, since we do actually have regular accounts of women fighting alongside men in battle. For example, during the Siege of Acre during the Third Crusade, we have several reports of this happening. After one skirmish, the Muslim historian uh, Ibn al-Athir reports, Among the prisoners were three Frankish women who had fought from horseback and were rec recognised as women only when captured and stripped of their armour. Afterward, according to the historian Imad al-Din, they were sold as slaves. 
But these must have been noble women because they could afford the horses and the armor and the weapons. I mean, the horse alone was worth many times the value of an ordinary peasant's farm. So clearly these women were not just capable of using the weapons, but they also had the economic security, the economic independence to risk these very expensive resources in battle. It wasn't just noble ladies who fought. During the same siege, the historian Baha al-Din uh, records a desperate Saracen attack on the Frankish defences. He writes, An observant old soldier who penetrated the trenches that day told me that on the other side of the parapet was a woman dressed in a green mantle who shot at us with a wooden bow and wounded many Muslims before she was overcome and killed. Her bow was taken and carried to the Sultan, who was clearly deeply impressed by the story. I use the, these examples just because they're two of the most detailed ones that I've actually come across in my own research. Uh, now, the fact that these historians found these um, examples noteworthy shows that there probably weren't a lot of women taking place in battle in these campaigns, but it does show that women did periodically take part in medieval warfare, just not in equal numbers with their men. Which brings us to the second part of this misconception. Was it purely because of patriarchalism that women didn't normally partake? And I would say that the answer is a laughably obvious no. Even these days, most militaries haven't successfully integrated women into combat roles, and the reason for that is that the female body is different to the male body. It's equally sacred. It's equally precious. But it's just different. Women have less upper body strength than men do, and that's just a fact that things like this are important in combat situations, and they can have a huge impact on the effectiveness of your troops. Um, add to this the fact that women can tend to be more vulnerable to things like sexual assault in the aftermath of battle. And it makes sense that by and large, uh, women who have a choice will often prefer not to get involved in battle if they can help it. War was never meant to be fun. Now, a while back, I did a Bible study trying to figure out what the Bible exactly has to say on the topic of women in the military, and what I found was rather enlightening. Um, I discovered that while the Bible never prohibits women from being in dangerous situations, learning how to defend themselves, or taking part in battle, um, it does encourage men to put themselves in harm's way as an act of service for the women in their society. The assumption is that war is not fun, war is, um, in the words of the Song of Roland, grim and terrible and rude, and that good men will want to protect those who are weaker than themselves, whether it's children, the disabled, or the elderly, or women, from this kind of um, experience. So even today, women don't usually participate in combat on a regular basis. And this is a big deal, because war has changed a huge amount since medieval times. The biggest change in the history of war over the last probably 8,000 8, years or so of world history is the invention of the firearm. Firearms superseded other weapons, not just because they were more powerful, not just because it was less trouble to train people how to use them, but also because they were a powerful equalizer. Before the invention of the firearm, warriors needed to train from childhood. They needed a fortune's worth of expensive equipment, and they needed to be as big and strong and fit as possible because this would give them an edge in battle. The invention of the firearm did away with all this. With a firearm, a starving cripple who had never handled a weapon before could deal with Sir Miles Gloriosus with just one little motion of the finger. And this one change paved the way for the disapp disappearance of the feudal aristocracies, because it meant that peasants actually could resist a fully 
armed, fully trained warrior with effective lethal force. And this was also naturally significant for women. It made it far more possible to include women in combat in the first place. So when we look at medieval societies, number one, they were not devoid of women learning to fight in battle. And number two, the reason why women warriors were not more common had less to do with patriarchalism than with the fact that women aren't physically well adapted to this role, which even after the invention of the firearm isn't all that common. So, if you're writing a fantasy that doesn't have a lot of women in combat, then you're not necessarily upholding a patriarchalist worldview. You're just writing a realistic story set in a, pa in a pre-industrial society. Okay, misconception number two. Women had strict gender roles in Middle-earth. Fair maidens who don't fight. Now look, I've read lots of stories where the women have strict gender roles, and Tolkien doesn't really write this way at all. Um, Sir Walter Scott comes to mind, G.A. Henty comes to mind, they're both authors I enjoy reading. This was definitely a feature of Victorian literature, and while Tolkien, who was born in that period, around the 1880s, if I recall correctly, he doesn't buck this trend particularly hard, but he does buck it. He didn't look to the medieval, uh, to the Victorian age for inspiration for the gender roles in his invented universe. But he looked to medievalism and to his own ideals. Um, take the elves. Um, concerning the elves, he wrote, their men and women were equal in nearly all matters, and, quote, there are no matters which among the elves only a man can think or do, or others with which only a woman is concerned. So among his female elf characters, you get people like Galadriel, who in her youth, in her backstory, she was quite an athlete. Um, her cousin Arathel was a hunter. And so Tolkien specifically noted, noted um, elf women often gravitated towards healing professions, um, while the elf men were more likely to be involved in war. The two professions didn't get mixed because they were incompatible on a spiritual level, according to the rules of his fantasy world, if healers fought then they would lose their gift of healing. But Tolkien also made sure to note that some elf men chose to be healers rather than warriors, and it was the same for them. They had to make sure they didn't fight. So this wasn't so much a gender thing as um, a, a thing to do with the calling. So if you read up on Tolkien's elves, you'll realize that in many ways elfin society represents Tolkien's own ideals, especially when he's writing about how they lived in, uh, in the Blessed Land in the West which is the case here. Um, so we can take it as read that whatever the flaws in Tolkien's own application of the principle, in principle he did believe in the equality, if not the equivalence, of the sexes. He didn't have a patriarchalist ideology. Meanwhile, you have Tolkien's human characters, and these include numbers of women who seem to be modelled on traditional medieval women. In a letter dated 1963, Tolkien wrote to one reader, quote, Eowyn was not herself ambitious in the true political sense. Though not a dry nurse in temper, she was also not really a soldier or Amazon, but like many brave women, was capable of great military gallantry at a crisis. Eowyn isn't the only human woman who, leads, who steps up to lead her own people at a moment of crisis in Tolkien's mythos. Um, there's also Haleth from the Silmarillion. And these examples are relatively rare in Tolkien's work because he was taking his inspiration from history. But one, that doesn't mean he was sexist himself, and two, it doesn't mean that anyone's culture was sexist. So I'm going to tackle that in a minute. But let's move on to misconception number three, which is The Lord of the Rings is sexist because it has very few female characters. Okay. Shall we just finish talking about the fact that even today, 
even after the inf invention of the firearm, to say nothing of an array of ladies' sanitary products and whatnot, it's still fairly uncommon to see women participating in combat, and this isn't because of patriarchalism so much as it's about technology and sacrifice. This is this is a very big theme in The Lord of the Rings. Um, well, it's all about sacrificing yourself, about enduring horrifying hardship to the point that your life is basically ruined by PTSD, as Frodo's is, specifically so that the people you love, both male and female, don't have to face it themselves. Uh, the fact that Frodo wants to do this for, like, you know, Farmer Maggot or Gaffer Gamgee doesn't make the farmer or the gaffer somehow less as people, so I don't see why it should make Lobelia Sackville-Baggins or Lady Arwen somehow less as people either. Um, there are very few female or elderly or disabled characters in The Lord of the Rings, specifically because this is not their story. It's a story about basically a small hand-picked band of commandos undertaking a suicide mission into enemy territory. This is the guns of Navarone, not Pride and Prejudice. So misconception number four. Nobody talks about patriarchalism in The Lord of the Rings, and Tolkien himself didn't care about it. On the contrary, I think Tolkien does care talk about it. He touches on it a couple of times, very briefly. This is not a book about oppressive cultural structures or about the status of women, women in Middle-earth. Not absolutely every issue in a fantasy culture is going to be able to have the spotlight in your novel. Books are always selective, and just because women's issues aren't at the forefront of The Lord of the Rings doesn't mean that they don't exist in, in his world or that he doesn't care. It just means that they don't belong in the story he's telling. Maybe some character might mention them in passing, but it's not the focus of the story. In fact, someone does mention this in passing, specifically Eowyn does. When Aragorn is trying to convince her not to follow him to the war, Eowyn objects with these words. She says, all your words but to say, you are a woman and your part is in the house. But when the men have died in battle and honour, you have leave to be burned in the house, for the men will need it no more. So clearly Eowyn, just like most medieval women, has come up against at least some forms of sexism and she isn't afraid to call them out. Um, Tolkien even... He brings this up again later. Um, Aragorn points out to Aomer that while he could ride out with his men and hit things any time he was feeling stressed out about the state of the kingdom of Rohan, Eowyn couldn't, and that was why um, and that was why these events hit her so hard. Um, so yes, there's discussion of gender roles in The Lord of the Rings, um, and overall strict gender roles are treated as being oppressive, which is what we would expect given Tolkien's personal views on this matter. Misconception number five. Oh, that is number five. Eowyn was primarily motivated by sexism in her culture. <sighs> so we've established that Eowyn was familiar with being told to stay in the kitchen, and she wasn't amused by it. However, I think we make a huge mistake about her character when we take this as being her sole or even her primary motivation. Yet so many people do, and it always makes me scratch my head. Fact. You have to be thoroughly trained from a young age in order to wield pre-industrial weapons. Eowyn describes herself on multiple occasions as a shield maiden. This is part of her identity. She is a well-equipped, well-trained warrior woman. And this training and equipping has obviously been carried out with the full approval of the powerful men in her family. In a really sexist culture, this would never have happened. Fact. No national or military leader ever survives a crisis of confidence on the part of his people. The medieval Egyptian concubine Shajar al-Dur was the 
was only the second woman in Muslim history to rule a Muslim state, and she lasted barely three months before being forced to step aside in favour of a male sultan purely because of the sexism in her society. In Rohan, when Theoden asks his people who should lead them while he's away at Helm's Deep, the response he gets is something along the lines of, is this a trick question? Theoden's men instantly suggest Eowyn for the job. They clearly have complete confidence in her, both as a military and as a civil leader. And this appointment is something that never would have happened in a really sexist culture, because in a really sexist culture, women aren't trusted to pick out a hat, let alone lead the nation in a time of crisis. Okay, here's the really fascinating bit. Here's, here's the number one thing that you don't know about Eowyn. Theoden agrees that Eowyn is the obvious choice to lead the people while he's away with most of the army at Helm's Deep. He then carries out a curious little ceremony, which meant nothing at all to me, until I read a little book titled Medieval Feudalism by Carl Stevenson. Stevenson begins his book with a recap of an essay by the Roman chronicler Tacitus, dealing with the ancient Germanic tribes and the customs which would later become medieval feudalism, according to Tacitus. Their assemblies are military gatherings, except when armed, they perform no business, either private or public but it is not their custom that anyone should assume arms without the formal approval of the tribe. Before the assembly, the youth receives a shield and a spear from his father, some other relative, or one of the chief men, and this gift corresponds to the toga virilis among the Romans, making him a citizen rather than a member of a household. So Stevenson goes on to discuss how this ceremony morphed into the medieval dubbing ceremony. He writes, the same ceremony reappears under the Carolingians. In 791, we are told, Charlemagne caused Prince Louis to be girded with a sword in celebration of his adolescence. And 47 years later, Louis in turn decorated his 15-year-old son Charles with the arms of manhood, that is, a sword. Here, obviously, we may see the origin of the later adoubement, which long remained a formal investiture with arms, or with some one of them, as a symbol. So Stevenson mentions the ceremonies and oaths that later got attached to this ceremony, but in its simplest forms it included, quote, at most the presentation of a sword, a few words of admonition, and the accolade. Okay, so we all remember that Tolkien was a medieval scholar with a special interest in the Germanic tribes of late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, right? He had all this background in his head when he was writing this passage where Eowyn is appointed to lead Rohan in the king's absence. Tolkien writes, It shall be so, said Theoden. Let the heralds announce to the folk that the lady Eowyn will lead them. Then the king sat upon a seat before his doors, and Eowyn knelt before him, and received from him a sword and a fair corslet. I thought this was the best thing ever when I reread the book a couple of years back. This little detail meant nothing at all to me until I learned about the history behind it, but what Theoden is doing, basically, is he's officially made Eowyn a knight of the Riddermark. Eowyn just got dubbed a knight by the patriarch of her clan, and nobody cracks a boo. See, this is what I'm talking about. No one is holding Eowyn back here. No one is trying to force her to conform to some traditional Victorian gender roles. She's been trained. She has a vote of confidence from the powerful men in her society. And now she's been made a knight. 
She might not live in a 100% egalitarian society, but her society is arguably more egalitarian than actual medieval societies were. I've heard of medieval women fighting as knights, but being dubbed as knights? Never. So this is the part where most people might wonder, but hang on, if she has no glass ceilings to smash, then why did she despair to the point of running off to seek death in battle? And the answer is pretty simple, and I think Tolkien makes it quite clear. Um, Eowyn is a proud medieval-style noblewoman in a society that values courage in battle above pretty much anything else. This is a huge part of who the Rohirrim are. And she's been stuck at home watching while her king sinks into um, fear, shirks his duty, despairs, and sits at home mouldering in his hall while his kingdom falls to pieces around him. The gender roles in her society, even though they aren't set in stone, do contribute to her malaise, because as a woman who isn't part of the regular army, Eowyn doesn't have the same warlike outlet as her brother does. But the root of her problem is that her national and aristocratic pride has been injured. It's not that the men in her life are trying to hold her back, it's that they've turned into wimps, and she's not she doesn't feel like she's in a place to single-handedly fix it. And this is the reason she falls so hard for Aragorn, who she sees as um, more noble than the men in her tribe, and it's also the reason why she rides off to the Pelennor Fields. I also want to draw attention to what Eowyn says to Aragorn when she's objecting to being fitted into traditional gender roles. She says, But I am of the house of Eol and not a serving woman. I can ride and wield blade, I can ride and wield blade, and I do not fear either pain or death. This is not quite what a modern woman would say. In fact, it's a very medieval sentiment. To say, I'm an aristocrat, not a servant, so you can't treat me like a servant. In the medieval world, class divisions and blood heritage were far more important than gender roles. This is why, when a king died without a male heir, the people would often be very happy to crown his daughter as a ruling queen, rather than to elevate some low-born knight to the throne. So for Eowyn, the argument is not, I am a woman with every bit as much of a desire to do something important with my life. The argument is, I'm not one of those servant-type people. I was born and trained as a warrior because I'm part of the warrior class. So this isn't exactly a sympathetic argument to modern ears, but it's extremely authentic to Eowyn's culture and status. Uh, again, the main thing that's bothering her is not the gender roles, and it's not, her, not really her unrequited feelings for Aragorn, it's her aristocratic pride. And this tells us something about her culture as well. It tells us that for the Rohirrim, it's expected that everyone from the warrior class will be a warrior, whether they're man, a man or a woman. The big divide in their society is not between men and women, it's between those who fight and those who do not. And this is why it's so natural for them to choose her as their leader. Misconception number six. Eowyn had to disguise herself as a man to go to war because of gender roles. Okay, so it might have been partly gender roles. I'll give you that. But that is to entirely ignore the massive elephant in the room, which is that literally, what, a week and a half ago, Eowyn was appointed as the regent of a kingdom. She's a world leader now. She has responsibilities. It's obviously not that she's not supposed to fight. She's been trained. She's been knighted. It's that she's supposed to fight a different battle. And sure, the reason the men around her are trying to keep her out of the suicide charge is because she's a girl and they want to spare her that. But Tolkien hints that she's got an understanding with the army's martial elf helm, so clearly one man at least sympathises with her and is helping her to hoodwink her uncle. Again, gender roles? 
small part of it, but not the most important thing here. The most important thing is that Eowyn has just deserted the military command she was given by her king, and in a feudal society, that's pretty serious. Misconception number seven. Eowyn's decision to stop being a shield maiden and become a healer happens because Tolkien wanted to reinforce traditional gender stereotypes. Okay. This line of reasoning goes like this. Eowyn got out of line by deciding to take on a masculine role, and so in order for the happy ending to occur, she has to be stuffed back inside that feminine healer stereotype. And, once again, I think you can only manage to arrive at this conclusion if you ignore the whole context of the chapter, and the book, and the universe in which this story takes place. So The Lord of the Rings, yes, yes, it's a very male-dominated book, in a contest. And Eowyn is probably the most important female character, which means that when she meets Faramir at the end and they fall in love, it's this very startling moment where this romance suddenly blossoms in the middle of a book that otherwise focuses almost claustrophobically on relationships between men. In fact, let's talk about this for a moment, because it's a fact that all the most important relationships in The Lord of the Rings are male-male, and it's no surprise that in the fan culture this gives rise to huge quantities of slash fic, you know, fan fiction about homosexual relationships between the characters. Historically speaking, there's actually a link between male-dominated cultures and homosexuality. Um, ancient Greece, 18th and 19th century Germany come to mind. This is logical. If you have a culture in which women are excluded or disdained, then the most important relationships a man has will be with his other male friends. And as others have pointed out, men don't really want to pursue romantic relationships with their inferiors. So one of these tr traditionally masculine cultures has always been the military. For instance, in his own day, uh, the militaristic and very toxically masculine Kaiser Wilhelm II, who partly caused World War One, he was something of a gay icon, lusted over by coteries of homosexuals in the military, which was much to his surprise. He thought they were just good army buddies. Anyway, so the reason why The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit focus so closely on male characters and male relationships is that they do take place during a time of war um, in a quasi-historical setting when it was a lot harder to successfully integrate women into combat roles than it is even now. And the, male, the Fellowship is an all-male, militarised society which is active in war zones. And this is why the most prominent female character in the book is the one who is also the most militarised, with, as I said, training, rank and combat experience. The other women in the book, they very much fit into the same kind of role that women fill during Tolkien's own war experience in World War I. They're nurses like Yoreth, uh, female heads of state like uh, Galadriel, or they're the sweethearts left behind like Arwen or Rosie. And so as a result, the relationships between men and women in The Lord of the Rings, they're extremely sparse. Um, the only prominent exception to this is the romance between Faramir and Eowyn at the end of the book. But I don't believe that this is because Tolkien had just had the urge to put Eowyn back in her place in the feminine role where she belonged. Uh, remember, we've already established that equality was one of his ideals, and for him, healing was a noble profession which both men and women should engage in. By the way, can we just stop saying that Eowyn gives up war so that she can become a good wife? And that's not what she or Tolkien said. She gives up war so that she can become a healer. Anyway, 
Like any other good author, Tolkien is very intentional about what he includes in the book and where he includes it. So this relationship between Faramir and Eowyn, it's in here for a very specific reason. Look where it occurs. It happens in this one self-contained chapter at the end of the book, right when Sauron has just been destroyed. And it's this extraordinary, lush, romantic, celebratory moment in the book. Uh, what Tolkien is trying to tell us is that now that Sauron has been defeated, the war is over and Middle-earth can start healing. Everyone, everyone in Middle-earth is about to in enter into this new age of the world full of peace and fertility and, uh, and rejoicing. It's this incredibly transformative moment, and Faramir and Eowyn are the perfect symbol of a man and a woman of war who have suffered incredible hardship and suffering, coming together and finding healing and realizing that they don't have to fight anymore. This is symbolic of something that is going to continue throughout the entire rest of the story, primarily for the male characters. The all-male military fellowship breaks up, in many cases, so that they can forge new relationships with women. People talk about Eowyn's declaration to become a healer as if she speaks the words and poof, she just magically turns into a doormat. No. If you look at the context, the context is that all the people of Middle-earth are now free from the rigours of war and they can start the, and they can all start the work of restoring and rebuilding. This is made explicit at the very start of this chapter when Eowyn has a conversation with the Warden at the Houses of Healing and they specifically discuss the relationship of war and healing. The Warden says, It is a thing passing strange to me that the healing hand should also wield the sword. It is not thus in Gondor now, though once it was so if old tales be true. But for long years we healers have only sought to patch the rents made by the men of swords. To which Eowyn responds that those who have not swords can still die upon them. She thinks that everyone should be able to defend themselves, and she points out that although she may be healed in body, it doesn't do her much good with the enemies still out there. And this sets up the context for the entire rest of the chapter, as, which includes Eowyn's later decision to give up war and be a healer. She only does this once Sauron is definitively destroyed, and she does it in the context of a global transition from war to peace, Tolkien isn't trying to tell us that good women stay in the kitchen. What's he, what he's actually saying is that in this new world, greatness for both men and women will now be defined as healing ability and not by what will like Valor. Faramir, Eowyn and Aragorn have all proven themselves as warriors. The question now is, can they prove themselves as healers? Are they able to lead in times of peace, not just in times of war? And the answer proves to be yes. I mean, look at Sam. We don't laugh at Sam Gamgee for going home, hanging up his sword, getting married, and becoming a gardener. So why exactly should we laugh at Eowyn for doing exactly the same thing? Remember who it is that she marries, by the way. Earlier in the book, Faramir has this whole speech where he says, I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. <coughs> Excuse me. I love only that which they defend. So why is it sexist for Eowyn to give up war, but not for Faramir to point out that war isn't the most important thing in life? <coughs> this brings me to my conclusion, which is the misconception which I think underlies all the feminist critiques of Tolkien. It's a lie which both feminists and patriarchalists have bought into. 
It's the lie which nearly kills Eowyn until she's able to see past it. That lie is that military glory is the only kind of glory there is. That the power of combat is the most important power there is. I don't see the Lord of the Rings as sexist, because I don't believe that war is the most important thing in life. That military um, glory and combat ability should dictate to us whether women are whether people are important. I don't see the Lord of the Rings as sexist because I don't believe that an absence of female characters in combat roles equates to sexism. It only makes sense to level this accusation at Tolkien if we're going to measure human worth based purely on combat ability. And while some women, under some conditions, can be effective in combat, even in pre-industrial societies, I'm thinking of the Lombard warrior princess Sikolgata, for instance, I just don't see why anyone's human worth should be measured according to how good they are at destroying things. If you've spent even five minutes reading Tolkien, you should know that his ideals were very peaceful and domestic. He believed that power, force, and authoritarian top-down power structures were evil by definition, and that they could never be used for good. That's what, that's what the One Ring is a symbol of. He did believe that weapons and warriors were necessary to fight evil, but like all Christians, he looked forward to a time when swords would be beaten into plowshares. He believes that both men and women were created for peace, fertility, and creativity, not for destruction and power. He utterly refused to measure anyone's human worth and dignity according to their size, their power, or their combat readiness. And it was this, far more than traditional gender roles, which informed his writing about women. Many are the strange chances of the world, said Mithrandir, and help oft shall come from the hands of the weak when the wise falter. Thanks for listening to episode 20 of the Monstrous Regiment podcast. I'm Susanna Roundtree, and I'd like to wish you all a Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to the Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.